Welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes. I'm Tom Hayes, and this is our 101st videocast, 91st podcast for the week ending September 23rd, 2021. Happy Thursday this week. I want to kick it off with a couple quick media spots, and then we'll get right down to it uh, because we've had a really important inflection this week that I'm excited to talk about. Uh, first off, I want to thank Ellie Terrett and Liz Clayman for having me on the Clayman Countdown last Friday. Uh, we recorded last Thursday, so this one wasn't included. And in that segment, um, you know, the point that I made that I started out with was that, uh, and the market was down that day, uh, as you can actually see right here on the screen, it was down about uh, 85 bips on the uh, S&P and a point on the uh, full percentage point on the NASDAQ. And the point that I made to Liz, um, because everyone, the six major banks were out calling for 10 and 20% corrections in previous weeks, September swoon, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I started off when everyone's looking for the same correction is usually when it doesn't happen. Uh, and as famed trader Jesse Livermore once said, the stock market's never obvious. It's designed to fool most of the people most of the time. Uh, and, and the point I made was we think that any pullbacks are contained to 3 to 5% at this stage until the Fed starts to take the punch bowl away early next year. And sure enough, on Monday with the Evergrande fears, we, we bumped right up on that 5%. We didn't quite get there. Uh, and, and now we've recovered uh, a decent amount of it. So, uh, so that's, that's proven to be true. And it's, it's really hard to fight the Fed. $5 trillion of liquidity earnings still going up. We're going to go through a bunch of that stuff. Uh, but, but that was kind of the base case. And uh, the other point that I made on Friday was that the implementation was uh, uh, implementation announcement was off the table for this week, which obviously was true. Uh, they did signal this week uh, that they're looking to November. However, in the, um, in the press conference, he said that he would need to see a decent jobs report in order to trigger that and the only jobs report he's going to get before november 2nd is the september jobs report and everyone knows the first two weeks of september was delta panic uh, so i think hiring is going to come in light and we saw some numbers today that would imply that so they may in fact punt to december like in 2020 uh 2013 uh and implement uh in q1 of 2022 which was our base case um the other point that I covered with Liz was, you know, kind of comparing the when they signaled in May of 2013 through when uh, they implemented in December of 2013, the 10-year yield went from 162 basis points to uh, 292 on the day they announced implementation and 3% about 12 days later, 12 or 13 days later. And the basis was it was sell the rumor, buy the news in terms of bonds. And that 3% was the peak for the next five years. So most people think when they start, start tapering and come out of the market, yields are really going to go up. I think yields are going to go up in anticipation of the implementation. And when they finally start implementing, that may be the peak in rates for some, some time. Uh, and we started to see that already. I think uh, today's close, the 10-year yield was up to... Uh, 140 basis points already. So it's really moved in the last two days, uh, about 10 basis points uh, since the Fed press conference. Um, now, the other point that I made was that we're at a key inflection 
and rising rates into year-end in anticipation of taper implementation favors a move back to the reopening trade. The ratio of value to growth performance is at an extreme low last seen right before the election last year. If you remember, uh, October, it felt like, you know, uh, <laughs> a water drip all October waiting for the inflection and then boom, it just took off. And I think we just hit the exact same thing. And that's what we were talking about last Friday. We're seeing it start to happen. Uh, and um, what we saw following the election catalyst last year was the biggest outperformance period, one of the biggest outperformance periods of value over growth in history from October, late October last year to May of this year when the 10-year yield went from 76 basis points to 173 basis points. I think we're going to approach 2% on the 10-year by Q1, and that's going to cause uh, the short-duration earnings of value and cyclicals to become much more valuable uh, then the long duration earnings that did well over the summer when uh, rates were compressed because of the discount uh, net present value of uh, discounting future cash flows. And what is that discount rate? So as the discount rate goes up, uh, you want the current earnings more than you want future earnings. And, um, and the other point that I made last Friday was we think the setup is similar to right before the election. And next week's Fed rhetoric may be the catalyst. And so far, we're seeing that in the last 24 hours. Uh, and I said, as such, it's time to trim some profits on growth tech stay at home and increase exposure to value cyclicals and reopening as long duration tech earnings become less valuable as rates rise. And then the two reopening plays that I talked about on that segment were uh, as global COVID cases have started to come down, cruises, uh, Carnival in Norwegian and airlines, UAL, United Airlines, and Southwest, and they've all started to get a major bid uh, since the Fed meeting. So that was somewhat prescient, and um, it was nice to see that start to play out uh, after some waiting, for sure. Um, next, I want to thank David Lin over at Kitco. Uh, he called me on uh, Tuesday to talk with him on Wednesday, right after the Fed press conference, and um, this was a great 20-minute interview uh, on all the implications of the Fed meeting. I think it's, it's probably as value, if not more valuable than this, this video cast this week. We went into a great amount of detail. We're going to cover more of it at the end because I want to, uh, we touch on Evergrande and some of the other factors as well. And I want to spend some time on it towards the end of this podcast video cast. So thanks to David Lynn for having me on Kitco. Um, a uh, couple quotes to start off our presentation. Uh, Buffett says, you can't reach success in investment if you do not think independently. Those of you who have been with me for a while, you know sometimes uh, too independently. Uh, but, you know, we, we've been on, out on lonely rafts uh, last year with uh, energy and value. And then when they turned, they turned hard and let no one in. And I think that uh, certainly we're now seeing the turn with the uh, value. We think we're going to have a monster quarter with that. Uh, and the reopening. And believe it or not, we're going to talk about why Evergrande may turn out to be one of the best things to happen to Chinese tech in a long time. Uh, and that's uh, non-consensus thinking for sure. But when you see how the pieces fit together, I think you'll be as uh, interested as I am uh, and fully vested in it as I am. Uh, okay, second quote for, to start us off, Winston Churchill, I am an optimist. It does not seem too much use being anything else. 
And again, you know, in this month with everyone pounding the table on September swoons and all the banks putting out 10 to 20% corrections, pounding the table, that was gonna happen. Why? Just because of valuations. Um, we've remained optimistic, but grounded in the facts, and that's proven to be a good thing. And when the facts change, we'll change our mind. I think we are gonna get a 10% plus, 10, 15% correction, early cycle correction sometime early next year as <coughs> the market starts to digest what uh, taper means and, uh, and looks forward. Now, wanna do a couple questions of the week. Um, first off, Ben, first name only. Hey Tom, what's your latest short-term thoughts on XOP, which is the exploration and production uh, companies, which is oil, which is reopening, which is interesting. Yes, a little late. We, we were talking about that over the last few weeks, but I think there's huge opportunity. So yeah, you could buy straight away the XOP. Uh, we've been talking about that for a number of weeks, but you could also, you know, um, find some that have lagged a little bit that are still high quality and, uh, and get your exposure there. So yeah, I, I like the group and, and we, we have the group and, uh, I think that's going to be just fine. And that will do well in a rising rate environment. And, um, Fed took their expectations, inflation expectations up for this year, PCE inflation from 3.4 to 4.2 at this last meeting and core PCE from 3.0 to 3.7. So those, those are great hedges. I, I like the whole group. Uh, Sumit Kapoor asks, hey, Tom, thank you for the weekly podcast. It's an excellent source of learning. In the last podcast, you had shared that the yield curve inversion precedes a recession. I have a few questions about this observation phenomenon. One, does it happen in every case, i.e. the yield curve inverts and a recession follows, or is the yield curve inversion one of the preconditions for a recession? Uh, if it is one of the preconditions, what are some of the other conditions for a recession? Two, what causes the yield curve to invert? Three, uh, what does the yield curve invert uh, also does the yield curve inversion happen only before a recession or can it happen before a correction as well? And four, is there a corresponding indicator such as yield curve inversion before a correction? <laughs> the magic predict, uh, correction predictor you're looking for. Hmm. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's answer that question. And the best way I can do it is visually here with this chart. So what is this red and white line? This is the ratio of the 10-year yield to the two-year yield. When that is steep, i.e. when it's up here, the 10-year yield is much higher than the uh, two-year yield. Uh, banks make a lot of money and they want to extend a lot of credit. That, keep, that drives the economy. When it's narrow down here and when that ratio goes below one, i.e. the cost of funds is greater than uh, what, they, what they pay for capital, uh, i.e. deposits and short rates, uh, is more expensive than what they make from lending capital, uh, they choke off credit because there's no incentive to lend and that slows the whole economy and that leads to a recession. So, um, you know, I just took it back to, you know, 40 years here. So there are enough instances where you can get a feel. Uh, so we had the 210 inversion in uh, late 2019, which predicted the recession in early 2020. We had the inversion in 2007, which predicted the recession. And it's usually six to 18 months afterwards, you get the crash, the 20% plus, and two quarters of negative GDP growth. So two for two. Then you had the inversion in 2000, three for three, uh, inversion and crash and recession. 
than you had in 1989. Uh, sure enough, you had the, the real estate and you had a recession in uh, 1990 and you had a correction here. And then prior to that was 1980 and you had, again, a big recession and a big crash. So it's a pretty good indicator. It's as good as it gets uh, in terms of predicting the big crashes. Now, what predicts the small crashes? Nothing predicts the small crashes, but what we do like to do is look at barometers. And we look at quite a few of them, maybe 100 or so, and they're just probabilistic. So we'll just go through them here like we've done on previous calls. Uh, this is the 10 day moving average of the equity put call ratio. So, you know, when you get uh, a serious amount of complacency, then you start to think, okay, is there too much um, complacency in the market? Are we due for a lightening up? Should we be taking profits on stuff? And that's when this ratio gets, gets down low. It usually precedes little corrections. It's not perfect. None of these are. You can't predict 5 and 10% corrections. You can. Uh, and you shouldn't really. I mean, you want to be, be out of the way for big corrections, 15, 20%, you know, because it's not just saving the money on the way down. It's having dry powder to buy uh, after, you know, when you get a 20% in the general index, you're going to have blue chip companies down 30, 40, and 50% that you can pick up and make 100% over the next three to five years. So that's going to happen every cycle. So um, you know, and then all of these others are pretty much the same. So that's why you want to look at a ton of them. Uh, this is the NASDAQ advanced decline ratio. Uh, it got extended early this week and now it's starting to bounce from levels it's bounced off historically. What's this one? Uh, NYSE 10% volume index. Uh, I, I don't want to know how it works. I, I just want to, I don't need to know how the tree works. I just want to pick the fruit. You can look at all the formulas and everything else, but more or less, every single one of these indicators more or less lines up. Um, and, you know, when it's gotten down to this level, you've gotten bounces most of the time, 80, 90% of the time. So if you look at enough of these things, you get a feel for, are we overbought? Are we oversold? Should I be adding stock? Should I be lightening up stock? And, uh, and it's worked pretty well. So, you know, again, same thing. This, this usually bottoms out. Uh, NASDAQ cumulative volume ratio, it's, all, it's bottomed many times at this level. That's where you want to be a buyer, not a seller. You want to be a seller when it's elevated here above two or trimming back some of your tech profits, and, um, and that's that. The NASDAQ declining issues, same thing. Got a little overextended early this week, and you wanted to be a buyer. Um, let's see if we can find any really extreme... Uh, this is extreme. The uh, XLE, the real estate, I know Ben had asked about the um, REITs, I think, last week. And I said, you know, I wouldn't be adding here. If anything, you know, in a rising rate environment, I'd be, you know, probably taking some profits. And then you've seen what's happened with REITs in the last couple of days. So they spiked and now they've rolled off about 6%. I think they could maybe even go a little bit lower. We'll see. Um, as a matter of fact, I thought I'd talked about some target in the 90s when we did that call. Um, yeah, you know, I wouldn't be a buyer until the mid to low 90s. I don't know if it gets there, but his, his question was, you know, right around up here, like, what do you think is going to happen? And, and, uh, and this thing was just part of like, okay, it's, it's, you know, this is where you want to be a buyer. I don't know if you want to be a buyer up here. I mean... Uh, you just, you know, materials now. This looks really cheap materials. So maybe we'll look at some materials. 
Um, you know, those are chemical companies. But again, this is all part of the reopening trade. This is overdone, and I think that stuff's going to outperform into year end. Uh, healthcare got overdone. So Cigna, we like uh, immensely. Uh, we think that's going to have a nice rally into year end to new highs. Um, Dow, intermediate term breath momentum, you see it got overdone. So again, these things are barometers and these can help you with when it's time to buy and sell in the short term, but you don't want to get too cute with these. You just want to have a look at them, see where you are. Obviously, when it's you know way up here, you want to look, okay, why is it up here? Can it persist up here? Sure, it can persist for a long time, but that's maybe where you want to like lighten up on your stocks that are close to your estimate of intrinsic value when you bought it. And then when it gets down to zero, like we hit this week, that's when you say, what can we buy that's on sale? Because this market's a little overdone and it's time to, to get some exposure. So this PMO buy all, uh, this is a lot of great stuff. I mean, PMO by Dow Jones, again, it got down here. This is where you want to be a buyer, not a seller. And, um, and we went through about three dozen stocks last week that we were anticipating for this. And uh, even if you bought uh, Thursday, you're up even with the whole Evergrande scare. So you buy things when they're on sale, when, when it favors PMO by SPX. Again, these are levels where you buy, you get rewarded. And if you, if you sell it, it on panic, you lose. Um, uh, so the Sumit, I hope these are, uh, giving you a lot of indications of where you can consider lightening up, where you can consider buying, but I wouldn't use this to trade the index. That, that's what all new people do. They try to, you know, trade the index. That's not where you're going to have an edge. The edge is are conditions more favorable for buying or more favorable for selling. And then what specific sectors are dramatically overbought, what specific sectors are dramatically overdone, and then what stocks in those, and then you do the fundamental analysis. Like, why is this stock down 30 or 40%? Uh, what's happened to earnings power over the last one, three, five, and 10 years? What is the market worried about? What are the bearish uh, street reports saying? Why, why is this thing down 40% below its intrinsic value? And what's going to be the catalyst to turn it around? Buy quality when it's on sale is basically it. And lighten up when it gets to intrinsic value, like, um, uh, like we talked about last year. You buy it when no one wants it. And when everyone starts clamoring for it and you see it on TV and everyone that wasn't interested 100% ago gets interested, you help them out and you lay it off to them. Um, here's another one, Dow Swenland trading oscillator volume. Again, these are levels where you get rewarded for being a buyer, not a seller. Um, bullish percent SPX, it got down to uh, 53%. This has been an area to buy. Um, so same thing with the McClellan Oscillator, NASDAQ McClellan Oscillator, uh, McClellan Summation Index. So, you know, these are just a handful of things we look at on a regular basis just to see where we are. Should we be net buying or should we be net taking profits? Same thing with this uh, one here, McClellan, uh, New York Stock Exchange, McClellan Summation Index. This is a buying level, not a selling level. There, there are always exceptions and nothing is uh, black and white, but you get a feel for when, when the odds uh, favor favor you and setups are, are in a better environment. Um, okay, so that's that. This is the, the VIX has spiked up early this week. It's rolling back over. You know, lower highs the whole way down. That's a downtrend according to all the technical analyst friends. Um, okay, so hopefully that's helpful. 
Uh, we went through the yield curve. Great questions, by the way. Uh, and here's one more reason to be an optimist. Look at these global daily COVID cases are absolutely rolling over. And for the big technicians, this is what we call a head and shoulders top, which means it's going to collapse. Uh, you know, a measured move, it will collapse from... Uh, what was the peak here? 900,000 to four, so 500,000. So you should lose 500,000 cases below the uh, neckline, which would be, we're gonna have negative 200,000 cases in uh, another few months, according to technical analysis. But nonetheless, uh, it's moving in a great direction. And this also favors the reopening trade and that's how we're positioned. The other thing that I think is gonna be a game changer, my guess is this comes towards the end of the year, more likely after that, once they've got you know, 90, 95% of people uh, vaccinated, I think you're gonna see the push for these antiviral Tamiflus. And here was an article in the Wall Street Journal this week, Pfizer's got one, which is great. So they won't be fighting it because they can sell it. Uh, they'll sell both the vaccine and they'll sell the pill if you get a breakthrough case. It's a great business. It's like, if our solution doesn't work, we've got another solution. Uh, so, uh, I mean, business doesn't get any better than that. Uh, and then Merck and Ridgeback ha have one and Roche has one. So they'll all be racing to get the first Tamiflu or COVID flu out pill that you take when you get COVID. And um, Dr. Gottlieb was saying, uh, if it does what they think it's going to do. It could also be used as a pro, uh, preventative or prophylactic, uh, which would also be pretty cool. Um, all right, so we covered that. Let's see. Uh, let's see if we can pull back up. No. All right, so let's pull up the 10-year yield just to see. So you had your um, conference. It was down. So now we're up, you know, uh, from 113 basis points on the 10-year yield to 140 basis points in the last seven weeks. And I think we're going to just float towards uh, 175, 200 bips by Q1 of next year. And again, that, that favors uh, value cyclicals reopening versus stay-at-home growth tech, uh, which do better when rates are lower. Uh, so, um, and just to give you an idea of the last time we had the value to growth. Same exact setup. So this was like right before the election, you had the 10 year yield, uh, you know, 70 basis points. And then boom, as these yields took off, like it's coming off this extreme base, they started to work their way up. And then boom, after the election from 70 bips, to 175 bips, I think you're gonna see a similar type thing. And this was one of the greatest periods of outperformance in history of value over growth. Uh, and I think we're gonna you know, uh, be bumping up against that here. And we're starting to see that. As a matter of fact, um, let's take a look, because we covered uh, about three dozen stocks last week. Uh, this was a screen from November 6th, uh, not November, September 16th. So uh, for seven days, yeah, exactly last, last Thursday. And you can see they were all down here. So that's seven days ago, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So it was exactly at the bottom. So United Airlines, when we went on Liz's show, was the next day. Uh, same with Southwest. These things have all ripped up higher. Even Las Vegas Sands with all the China headwinds, I think this is gonna be a monster. 
MasterCard, Fleet Corps, uh, Activision got hit, but it's, it's now bouncing after the uh, Fed conference. Philips, this is a refiner. Uh, this is starting to get bid. Uh, Viacom, all, every single one of these since this press conference are now getting bid. Suncor, that's energy. Uh, Boeing, huge move in the last uh, two days. Uh, and part of that was they came out and said, what have we been saying is when China approves it, that's going to be the next catalyst. Well, Boeing came out and said, lifts China jet demand estimate over two decades to 1.47 trillion. Uh, this came out today, raised its forecast slightly on Thursday for China's aircraft demand over the next 20 years, betting on the country's quick rebound from COVID and future growth in its budget airline sector and e-commerce. Uh, Chinese airlines will need 8,700 new airplanes through 2040, 1.2% higher than its previous estimates of 8,600. That would be worth 1.47 trillion, said the plane maker in a statement. Uh, ba -ba -ba. These are promising opportunities to significantly expand international long-haul routes and air freight capacity. Longer term, there's potential for low-cost carrier growth to further build on single-aisle uh, single demand. And authority. Okay, China's Aviation Authority, the first regulator to ground the 737 MAX following two deadly crashes, has yet to approve the return of service for the aircraft in the country. China accounts for a quarter of Boeing's orders of all aircraft, and that's going to be the big catalyst. India approved just a few weeks ago, and China's going to have to approve just because they simply need the planes and they don't want to slow down their economy any further than they've already done by their own hand. So uh, that will all be a positive thing moving forward. Um, so the stock's up uh, from, you know, whatever it was, 208 to 221. Uh, Uber, another one we covered last week, has taken off from 38 to 45. Uh, Intel, every single one of these, even Triple M is now getting bid. Lockheed Martin, which has just been struggling uh, all August because of its aerospace exposure. Now that you're seeing the COVID cases come over, these are all going to get bid. Boeing, Lockheed, uh, everything with big aerospace exposure is going to start to get bid. Um, General Mills had good earnings uh and so on and so forth so there's still opportunity there but they're getting bid now so it's it's uh it's time to pay attention um okay so china pumps 17 billion dollars into the system amid evergrande concerns and this is one of the key things i covered with david the you know evergrande is basically it's a chinese property developer it's been a slow motion train wreck the most telegraphed train wreck in history the stock's been down it's down 90% over the last 14 months. Um, and uh, what was reported in Asia markets, which hasn't gotten picked up in a material way uh, by conventional media over here, but uh, basically sources close to the Chinese government have told Asia markets that a deal will... Uh, a deal that will see China Evergrande restructured into three separate entities is currently being finalized and should be announced within, within days. The state-owned enterprises will underpin the restructure, effectively transforming the property developer into a state-owned enterprise. It's designed to protect the Chinese nationals who's bought apartments from Evergrande and also Evergrande's wealth management product, products. So who are they going to screw? They're going to screw the uh, U.S. dollar-denominated bondholders and the equity holders most likely. 
but but we'll see. Depends on what the composition of it is of those equity holders, and so they're going to ring fence that. But the other thing that's going to happen as a result of this fear and slowdown is I think this is going to be a net positive because if you remember we covered in the Bank of America Global Fund Manager Survey, uh, institutional managers with 800 billion are anticipating that. China will have to move because of their slowing growth numbers from a tightening stance, which they started uh, unwisely six months ago, to an easing stance. And we think that as a result of Evergrande as the catalyst, we could see the first uh, rate cut next month. So we've seen some uh, kind of symbolic moves in um, uh, lending rates for banks, et cetera, over the summer, but, but this could be the first central bank rate cut uh, and reverse their tightening into an easing policy, which would be really good for global growth and obviously critical for China, which has slowed themselves down considerably between regulation and uh, policy over the last six months by their own hands. So I think that Evergrande is a wake-up call when they have people outside of the, the facilities rioting that they want to get paid. Uh, that's not a good thing when they've got their uh, annual Congress next year and uh, uh, President Xi Jinping's bid for his third term, uh, uh, potentially in turmoil if this gets a whole lot worse. So they'll ring fence that. They'll probably put stimulus out in a material way. And I think that uh, it, it's going to catch a lot of people short. It's going to catch a lot of people off guard. Sentiment couldn't be worse. Positioning couldn't be worse. And I think the short squeezes, and like I said, you know, when it turns, uh, I don't think I don't think that uh, it's going to let people in. I think it's going to be abrupt. I think it's going to be violent. And I think you're going to see a similar thing with like these Boeing's, like you're seeing uh, people off sides. They've just been fading down over the summer, and now that with the rhetoric from yesterday as the catalyst, uh, I think these reopening stocks that are down 20, 30, even. 35% over summer uh, can be up, you know, 30, 40, 50% before the end of the year uh, violently. And I, and I think you're also going to see some of that take place in China uh, with sentiment so low when it turns, it rips hard. And, and we saw that last year when we were pitching oil and financials. And then when they finally turned, it was just overnight and it was straight up. And everyone kept saying for the re waiting for the retest and it didn't come. And then when they were up 80 and 90 percent, everyone started getting interested on TV. And that's when you can start to, to peel a bit off. Um, OK, article of the week. We have covered a lot of it. Um, yesterday we heard from Chair Powell, his sole mission is to land the plane and unwind the emergency policy with no ca casualties, and he's well on track to do so. Uh, he is the sully of monetary policy. If you remember the water landing in New York City, they did a movie about it with Tom Hanks. Um, so we covered uh, our, our segment with uh, Liz Clayman. Thanks for having me on. And now we're going to go through in a little bit more detail our segment with David Lynn on Kitco yesterday. Um, these are some of the tables that we referenced throughout the interview. Um, and this is a Fed projection. So they've taken down GDP from 7% to 5.9%. Uh, you also saw that in the Atlanta Fed GDP Now projection. They have uh, this quarter at 3.7, down from 6, I believe. Uh, and that's due to, you know, COVID and the short-term thing that we have to work through. Uh, the unemployment rate, they had it at 4.5 by the end of the year. It's now 4.8. So that gives them latitude because pre-pandemic, we were at 3.5. We 
We were at uh, 5.7 million people unemployed pre-pandemic. We're still at 8.4 million. So if they want to punt in November because the September jobs report is not good enough, they can do that. They can punt to December. They've got adequate cover. And then probably the October jobs report will be good enough that they can say, hey, we're going get, to get this party started in, in January or, or maybe right away in December uh, like they did in 2013. Uh, we'll see. The, also, they took their inflation expectations up from 3.4 to 4.2 for this year. And then you see these moderate over time. Uh, the dot plot, uh, this was somewhat hawkish. You went to a split. Uh, nine members believe that they'll have one or more hikes in 2022, nine believe we'll have zero, nine of the members. That was up from the last meeting. But, you know, that, that's natural because if you're taking inflation expectations up, uh, even though you're saying that, you know, Powell is saying it's transitory to supply chain bottlenecks and you'll get a new supply of labor now that the unemployment benefits roll off and childcare is available for people to go to work uh, because they can send their kids to school. Um, but with inflation up, uh, it's natural that more people would say to cover themselves that, that we're going to have rate rises. If it proves to be transitory, and Powell said as much, if we have no inflation, there's no real reason to raise rates. So if this drops down, um, it pushes out. And our base case has been taper Q1 of 2022 and first rate rise Q1 of 2023. Uh, and I think, I think those are both going to pan out well. Um, okay, so we've covered this last week, um, but I want to emphasize, you know, this is the ratio of value performance to growth. Uh, it was at its lowest level right before the election. And again, you saw rates rise and you saw value have one of its greatest periods of outperformance in history from uh, October through May. I think we're going to see a similar, and I think yesterday was the catalyst, and we're seeing it today based on the stocks that are performing, tech underperformed, all the reopenings are ripping higher. Um, same exact setup here uh, with the 10-year yield, and this was when they signaled taper, this was when they implemented taper, that was the peak in yields. Uh, this is when they signaled, and I think we're going to see a rise up to two, two maybe maybe 225 basis points, and that may be the peak for the cycle when they actually implement, might, might be the peak in yields. Um, okay, the other thing to keep in mind that I covered with David is that um, after they start, they'll still be purchasing another $450 billion of bonds over that eight-month period to, to winding down taper, plus principal and uh, uh interest reinvestment, that's another $660 billion of liquidity, which is greater than the whole of QE2. So rather than saying we're winding down tapering, they should say we're going to do another QE2, and the market would respond accordingly. It's, it's abundant liquidity, never-ending. And then on top of that, you got a $1 to $3 trillion infrastructure and social spending that's going to get jammed through uh, that we probably don't need. Uh, we do need the infrastructure part, but that's you know $500 billion dollars. Uh, and that's going to be also uh, stimulative in the short term, and we'll have to pay for it in the long term. Um, we remain sanguine, even in the face of all the noise this week. We talked about credit spreads when they contract from elevated levels. That tends to persist for multiple years. 
multiple years. We're only a year in here, multiple years. Uh, and so those saying, well, credit conditions haven't been this loose since 2007. Yeah, but they were that loose for three years before 2007. And we're just getting started. It's still a new business cycle. We had two quarters of negative GDP growth. We had the inversion in 2019. We're nowhere near an inversion. We're near the steepest we've been in six, seven years. Uh, and this should, should remain steep for another few years of the cycle, at least a year and a half, two, and maybe three or four uh, if the Fed does a good job and they reappoint Powell. Um, okay, corporate buybacks announcements, 760 billion announced already, more on the way. Unyielding liquidity, we've talked about. Uh, 4.5 trillion in money market funds, that compares to 3 trillion pre-pandemic, so 1.5 trillion that's uh, losing purchasing power on a daily basis due to inflation, that needs to get back into risk, ass risk assets at some point. Earnings estimates are still going up. There's a lot of noise about margin compression and inflation and labor costs. Uh, we've seen it in earnings and you'll probably get some of that and you may get some lower guidance. But where we are, considering where we are in the CapEx cycle and inventory restocking, I think earnings uh, climb higher and fits and starts by the end of the year could go from 220 to 230, up from 200 about six months ago. Um, travel, let's look at the TSA pass-throughs. Uh, those have basically hovered around 75% of pre-pandemic in spite of Delta and, and about 100% greater than where they were last year, 100% or more. I think this is just going to pick right back up because even in the early part of uh, September, if you look, you know, we were at 2 million pass-throughs versus 2.2 pre-pandemic. And, and keep in mind, this is without much business travel, without much international travel. So leisure has really picked up the baton. You add back business, you're seeing some of the restrictions come down on international. We're off to the races. That's why we love these Boeings, Lockheeds, uh, UALs, LUVs, airlines, that type of stuff. We love the whole story. And, um, and we just keep our eye on daily cases and everything else. Um, okay. Uh, and then the rotation. So if we follow the same pattern leading up to the taper Im implementation, supported, this is supportive of reopening sectors that have taken a breather. We've covered that at, at infinitum. Uh, the key thing I wanna reemphasize because of their cyclicals value reopening stocks, relative underweight in the general indices, relative underweight to tech, we could see violent upside rallies in many stocks that have seen summer swoons down 20 to 30%, even without the general indices doing much. Mid single digit gains for the general indices through year end would be realistic, but some reopening stocks that fell 20 to 30% from June to September due to Delta could be up 20, 30, 40, even 50% before year end. We stand by that. Uh, we've covered the Evergrande. We saw sentiment on the AAII tick up on the bullish side. On the bearish side, it's remained elevated. So fear is still present at the retail level. The fear and greed index is still at or near an extreme at 25. This is a general area where you want to be a buyer, not a seller. Uh, that's down from 25. So fear was, was, uh, is at or near an extreme. That's when you want to be buying when there's blood in the streets. And I think the National Association of Active Investment Managers, uh, I think they're still kind of in no man's land, but they're underweight if, if uh, we're going to have to have a rally, they're going to have to chase up. So they're at 77% uh, relative to 87%. So they sold off into the Evergrande. Now they're going to have to buy back. 
Uh, as we said in previous notes, while everyone debated whether we're going to have a September swoon or not, we took a step back and looked for sectors and stocks that have already had a summer swoon and bought or added to the quality stocks that were on sale. We'll review some of them in this week's podcast videocast, which we just did. Uh, Chair Powell is attempting to orchestrate a perfect landing like Sully, the air airline pilot. So far, his skillful telegraphing is laying the groundwork for a successful approach. Time will tell if he can pull it off, but so far, so good. Um, and that's that uh, defense and aerospace earnings. We took the top 30 weights over the weekend. And what we saw is over the last 60 days, the cumulative 2021 earnings power of these stocks was revised up. 2.47% in the past 60 days, and the 2022 estimates are up 1.01% over the same period. And during that exact same 60 days, what was happening? Defense uh, and aerospace stocks were uh, going down while earnings power was going up. That's where we want to be buyers, and that's what we've done, and that's why we've been pounding the table on Boeing and uh, Lockheed and defense and aerospace and the like going into end of year, and yesterday was the catalyst in our view. Uh, economic data, uh, quickly want to get through this. Building permits were up, that's positive. By the way, those have sold off. I think there's gonna be an opportunity there. Housing starts were up. Um, uh, let's see, crude inventory is a big draw this week, bigger than expected, 3.5 million barrels. Uh, continuing jobless claims were weaker than, uh, came in worse than expected, 2.8 million people. Uh, had continuing jobless claims versus 2.6 million estimated. This is the key number. This is why I think the September jobs report is not going to be decent, and therefore they're going to have to punt from November to December for an implementation decision. Initial jobless claims uh, also missed expectations, were expected to be 320,000, came in at 351. So again, all the Delta scare, that particularly the first two weeks, um, has set us up to have a less than decent jobs report in September like we had for August, and therefore the Fed can punt one more month to December. Most likely the October and November reports will be quote unquote decent enough for uh, the Fed to, to make a move and uh, implement, we think, in Q1, at which time then we start to look for uh, early 2022, you know, 10 to, you know, 10 to, 13% type of corrections, which would be normal in the early part of the business cycle. So we've covered a lot of information in a short amount of time. I hope you found that helpful. Uh, we did have a sea change this week in my view. We anticipated it last week. It came to pass. That's a positive thing. Uh, we think we're going to get a similar situation out of China as the noise dies down. And when the tide shifts, it'll shift abruptly because the sentiment is so uh, pessimistic at the moment. And, and when it turns, uh, the chase will be on. We just don't know when, but I think the conditions are set up that it's going to be pretty quickly because they're going to have to move in terms of stimulus, in terms of easing, and in terms of backing off on regulation because it hasn't served them well. Uh, so with that said, uh, we'll be back next week, same time, same place. Thanks for listening in and make it a great one. Bye for now.